Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 256. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Jack. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 256 you are currently listening to. My guest today is Scott Evans. Scott is making a return to the podcast. He was originally on the show on episode 10. Yeah. And much has changed. So we are going to revisit the conversation with Scott and find out what has changed. Primarily, what we're going to talk about is the change from having a day job to not having a day job. How about that? He is a member of the band Kowloon Walled City, engineer, mixer. All the links will be in the show notes. You know the routine. You know how it works here. I went over to Scott's studio, which uh, is located in the same building as Sharkbite Studios, run by our good friend Ryan Massey. Of course, others work out of there that we know, such as uh, Jessica Thompson, Piper Payne, it's one of the few buildings left in the Bay Area where there's actually, you know, people working and meeting each other in the hallways because actually I ran into Jessica Thompson when I was there. So coming up, very excited to have him back, Scott Evans, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about adulting well, aging, and the inevitable process of getting older and more experienced. Well, so this is the month of November as I record this, and this is the month... And unfortunately, the year that I turned 50, I'm looking forward to it. I'm also a little disturbed by it, as you could imagine. And I'm sure a lot of you who are much younger are going, oh, my God, 50. That's crazy. You're old. And some of you who are older than me are probably going, oh, my God, if I could go back to 50. Uh, Talking to various people around me, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine the other day, and he said, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm coming up on 40. And I thought wow, God, if I could go back to 40, what I could could accomplish with what I know now. As I look back, I'm frustrated by the fact that I don't think I've made as good a use of my time in the past as I do now. And that frustrates me. I'm far more organized than I used to be. I'm still, you know, not a master at it, but I'm, I'm far more organized now. You know, financially, it took me a long time to get, to get it together. And that's frustrating. I don't have any major regrets of of the mistakes I've made, but that area of not kind of getting to the adult part quicker, that that frustrates me. And that that is something that I I think about a lot, especially as I um, watch my sons come up through school and I think, oh my God, they're learning things that I didn't learn until I was well out of school. And seeing younger, uh, more hotshot, Folks come up through the ranks, lots of lots of men and women in, in the ranks of audio who are just badasses. And I just think, what was I doing? What was I doing with all that time? Here's a couple things. I'm just going to throw this out there. Take it with a grain of salt. This is just the ramblings of a soon-to-be 50-year-old, and I don't want to guilt you too much here. But there's just a few things that, like, let's talk about this. Um, being motivated costs you nothing, but it can get you everything, right? My motivations in the past have been very short-term and I haven't thought long-term. So my 
advice to you, if you're younger than me, is get some motivation. Find the motivation for whatever it is you're doing and do it. You know, act on it and try to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Do what you say you're going to do. Call people back. Email people back. Don't ghost people. Um, if you don't want to do something, tell somebody. Be truthful. Just be transparent. Just, you know, you're not going to hurt somebody's feelings if you tell them the truth and just say, you know what, I actually, I think I'm going to pass. It's just not really what I want to do right now. You know, if it's, if it's a gig that you're turning down or... Uh, also, value your time. All of you out there, don't do work for free. Just don't. Just, you know, even if you come up with a nominal sum or a trade deal, don't work for free. Don't let people take advantage of your time because your time is what you've got, right? And you need to take advantage of that time for, for you and your family uh, or you, yourself and your dog or whatever. Whoever is in your life that you care deeply about. But I turned down a major gig in uh, San Francisco a few weeks ago. And the reason I turned it down was is because it paid like shit. And I thought, oh, it's this big deal. And, it, and when I found out how much it paid, I was like, no way. You know, to, if I'm going to step away from my family for uh, the course of a few days, I got to make more than, you know, a certain amount to make it worth my while. Also, get out of your own way with uh, gear and just really, if you're working with music and you're working with artists, really focus on facilitating their process of, of, of achieving their musical vision. Don't get so caught up in the gear. Gear is great. We talk about it very little here on the show, but I do recognize its value, but only to a degree, right? Just don't let it get in your way. You wouldn't use a hammer that's cut in half or that's about to fall apart, right? Just go get the hammer that does the job that nails the nail use it and don't obsess over it right schedule your life get a grip on how you manage your time and I, i'm trying to teach my sons that now because it's something that i sucked at for a long time get a calendar and abide by it it is it it will if you follow the calendar you will inevitably show up where you're supposed to be and uh, follow through with the things you're supposed to follow through with, you know? So these are some basics. I could go on and on and on, and I don't want to talk your arm off, but I just, I'm being reflective as I'm getting ready to turn 50 here. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not too, too worried about the act of turning 50. It's more like I'm worried about the time. Who knows what, how much time is left? So I want to make sure that I really take advantage of it. And uh, of course, I will keep doing the podcast because I find that that is so re rewarding for me and I love to love to do it. And I hope you continue to love listening. So, well, that's it. Yeah. Turning 50, no matter what age you're turning, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, whatever it is. If you're hearing this, you're obviously still here on this planet. Take advantage of your time. Get organized so that if you have all your ducks in a row, so to speak, other things in your life can be a lot more relaxed and you can enjoy the things like family and traveling and, and hobbies and the things that you really love doing and hanging out with friends and, and recording, right? Doing that. All right. That's my rant. Thanks for drinking coffee with me. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. 
and you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom. Very simply, just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Scott Evans here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me here at your studio. As we were just discussing, you were you were number 10. And here we are at 256. And I'm turning 50 this month. And I'm I'm feeling extra old now as this is all playing out. How long ago was number 10? Oh shit. It was five years ago. About five years Easily ago, yeah. Five years right ago. when I moved into the space, I think. And you know. For the longest time, I would say like through the first hundred, easily, you were always in the top 10 of the downloaded shows. And I think part of that had to do with, well, you're a cool dude, but also your band of of Calvin and Wild City. I think that there's there's some interest there as well, but you and Andrew Sheps... And some of the other folks were like easily like, I oh, always yeah. look at the numbers. I'm like, oh, Scott's going to be <laughs> thrilled. Look at the numbers. Yeah, me and Andrew Sheps. You know. I know. I, I don't understand that at all. <laughs> oh, that's super cool. It's very surprising to me. But 
Who's the most popular person now? That's a good question. I haven't looked in a long, long time, and it fluctuates. It's you, Matt. You're the most popular oh, person. Yeah, well, see, I'm on every episode. That's right. So I, I, I get to dominate all the shows. So I was super interested in talking to you today because, number one, you quit your day job. I did. Uh, since I interviewed you last, and that's a pretty big jump. When I saw you tell all of us that, hey, I'm quitting my day gig to do this. I was like, good man. He's figured it out. He's figured out some method of eking out the living. Yeah, you're, you've got a look on your face, so maybe you don't. But tell me about that. Why, so you, how long were you at this day gig? So I was a professional software developer, programmer, and I've done that since the day I graduated college in 1935. And uh, <laughs> I thought it was 18. 1835, yes. The computers were different then. Yeah, I've been a programmer every day of my life. And this last job I've been at for 11 years, it's the best team and product and job I've had in my whole life. And I've been doing audio nights and weekends uh, more and more and more and more, you know, and you can talk to any of my close friends and every six or eight or 12 months, I say, guys, I have to quit audio. This is fucking killing me. I cannot keep doing this. And I think it's because I've been trying to do it, you know, at a level that is, it's just more than a part-time thing. It's more than a nights and weekends thing. And I look at my calendar, I would just feel sick. And, you know, in coordinating with my wife, we have kids and try just the logistics of all of it. It's just been a lot. So I was trying to work out a way where I could maybe try to work part-time at the day job, which is just forever. I've been very conservative about these kinds of decisions. I've never not had a day job. I'm, I'm very conservative about that. And the, the part-time thing fell through. And I said to myself, like, well, you know, this is it. If you really ever want to do this and, and you're already old, you're not getting any younger and uh, right. very busy. And my wife has a good job with good health care. So maybe I can just unclench a little bit about being the rock and the, the dependable one in our family and go try this for a while. And if I can stay busy enough, I'll only cut my salary in half. <laughs> and that's pretty busy. You know, it's, I don't know, I, I don't remember the math, but it's, you know, can, if I can work 250 days a year or something like that, I mean, it's a, that's a lot of records. So we'll see. I talked a lot with my wife, Brady, about this. And historically, I've supported her doing all kinds of varied, adventurous stuff and just continued to be the person who every day has the same, again, reliable, rock-like uh, career. And she's down to support. And so here we are trying this. Sorry, that was a very long answer, but it was a big decision. Especially historically based on you've always had a day gig and you've done this job for 11 years. Are you a spreadsheet kind of guy? You mean as far as like personal finances or? Yeah. Eh, yes and no. Do you run the scenarios and go, well, if I did this and this is how it would work? Yes. And really the truth is, for straight up audio engineering, you don't need much of a spreadsheet, right? You can say, I build this much a day and a typical record is this many days. And so do a little division. Like, do I think I can do that many records a year? Let's say that I work for 10 days on a record, which is not historically true, but let's just say that. Well, you got to probably do 30 records a year to stay busy then, right? 300 mm -hmm. days a year or 25. That's a lot of fucking records, right? And that's assuming that all the records you can stick to the exact same well, budget. Well, it's, it's a guesstimate, right? Yeah. yeah, and my rate is pretty much unchanging. Like, I charge daily rate. But it's just as far as a guesstimate goes, I mean, the truth is, 
without doing this, there's no way to know. There's just no way to know how busy you can be, how booked you can be. So yeah, there's a lot of talking about it. We've been talking about it for fucking years. I mean, I mean years, like since before my wife and I were married and we've been married 17 or 18 years. So it's a long time coming. And I have skills if I fall on my face or if financially it just doesn't work out. I'll quit. Yeah. I assume you've been saving and you have, it's not like you just like have been living paycheck to paycheck and then just one day just quit. No, this is more calculated than that. And again, my wife is keeping her job and most importantly, as Americans, is able to provide health care for us. Yeah. Really big deal with kids. You just never know when someone's going to break their arm or something and it's going to cost $50,000. So we're trying it and we'll try it for a couple of years. And if in a few years we look at each other and we go, well, this is not tenable, then I don't know what'll happen. I mean, I really, it might be like fire sale and I just, these two things are incompatible. Yeah. We'll see. Well, there's so much planning in the, in the beginning of that process and like running the numbers and trying to plan for the worst case scenario. But then there's the actual doing it. And once you quit, and you've severed the tie, then it's like, well, okay, you got what you asked for. You're now doing it. Now what do you do with your time? What's changed since you've left the job? Well, so when I, this is very fresh. My first actual day off from the day job was like a month ago. And I got on a plane and went to Chicago to record. And I basically, every day since then, been working. I've, I've got a substantial backlog of work. I mean, it was one of the reasons that I was so stressed out all the time. So I've got, I don't know, I've got to look at a text file on my computer, but I've got eight or 10 records to mix and I've got three or four book to track. So I've been totally busy. The, I think the challenge has been scheduling, you know, just getting better at like, how do I fit all this in? How do I set expectations? I still don't know how long it's going to take to mix your record. So I can't just put on the calendar four days, Matt's record. So trying to get better at that stuff has been, that's been the new thing. Mm. I'm perfectly used to sitting in a studio or sitting in front of a computer. None of that stuff is different. It's just like, whoa, I'm able to move through my backlog much faster now because I'm able to work on it for eight hours a day or something. And, and I'm awake <laughs> while I'm working on it, which is novel. How has it affected your mental state? your physical state by not having that day job now? I think mentally, when I get home at night, it's kind of weird, like I don't have another thing to rush off and do. That was the reality, it has been our reality for years. It's like I finish one job, I make dinner for my family, we eat, and then I say, all right, I gotta go. And I go off and work until one in the morning and then do it again. And now I get home and it's like- Dad's home. Yeah, I'm home. Like, what do I do now? So I've been doing more photography lately and I, and I do some of that stuff with my kids. I've been building more audio kits and I do that stuff with my kids. I finished an amp that I've been trying to rehab for years last weekend. Is again, that that PV kids. amp? Yeah. <laughs> that you, you posted with yes. where your mom did the cross stitch? So good. That, that was amazing looking. That's when your mom is from the South, you got to leverage it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've been able to do more stuff like that. So it feels great. It's really good. And thus far, we're still able to eat and stuff. So that's good. Yeah. Eating is, that's important. It's I'm good. Glad, I'm glad you can continue with that program. Yeah. Well, do you feel like you've been doing this for a while? You know how to make records, but are there aspects of the job now of making records that is new territory for you that has been opened up as a result of getting rid of the gig? Yeah, yeah, I think the, the most notable one that I can see so far, this is kind of funny, but is there's two things. One is they're both booking related. If you want to do a record with me, let's just block out eight days and do it. And that was always very difficult. Oh, yeah. You know, 
oh, I, you know, I got to take off work or maybe like there's this record I did. The one 10 day session I did, which was like my first long session a few years ago, I got up at 6 a.m. I coded until noon and then I came over to the studio and we worked from like one to midnight every day. And that was the way, you know, I did that instead of taking vacation. But the number of long sessions that I've had is very few. And now I've got a, a ton. So already we're booking those up and that's great. That to me is like the dream. Like to have eight days straight to work on a record. God, it just sounds dreamy. Jeez, to even have the budget for that is just stupendous. Well, the budget gets spent either way. We spend eight days making a record. It's just like, oh, come over and do your vocals nights and shit like that. And now it's like, let's just do this all in one sitting and it'll all be stuck in our heads and we'll all be together the whole time. And we'll all keep our heads down and hopefully I can do a lot more of that. And that's also just a lot easier to manage in your head than a million one-day overdub sessions. Are there other aspects of an audio career that you're exploring as far as like trying to optimize how you operate, make money, diversify, as I always talk about? Not really. <laughs> I, the, the thing I want to do is make records. Okay. That's the thing I want to do. It's the thing I've always loved doing. It's the thing I love doing. I've talked a little bit with some friends about like, I don't know if you remember, there's a few years ago, like we had this prototype mic clip for a 421. Yeah. That we just were never able to get off the ground. We just didn't have enough time to get the manufacturing really ironed out. I'd still like to do that. That might make a few bucks and it would just be fun. And I, the audio world actually wants it. And sometimes those things turn into other things. Mm -hmm. You know, you just never know. Like just by opening that door, who knows? Then maybe you end up with a, a side hustle to your side hustle or whatever that's interesting. But I'm not planning anything. I'm not a really a good planner. I have to say this was an interesting thing for me the other day. My oldest son was working on a like a profile of an individual and he chose me, which that was a little bizarre. Boring. And, and, and so he was asking me these questions about, well, you were, you were in these bands and you did this and, and you quit this band and you seemed happy about that. And what occurred to me out of this exercise, he was asking me these questions and I was like, well, what are you writing about? Oh, you're writing about me. Oh, this is bizarre. And as I was helping him kind of, you know, changing around of paragraphs and just maneuvering of, of sentences and saying, well, you might want to say it this way. And as I read it, what occurred to me was I thought, wow, it's really interesting to look back and think, I started out with this one agenda of wanting to be this rock star. That didn't work out clearly. And while things took a very different turn that I never anticipated, all in all, I'm happy with the way things have worked out so far. And who knows what's going to come up next. So I'm just kind of curious how this has kind of happened to you in a sense, because things have taken a new turn with getting rid of this gig and this way of operating for years. And now you're doing the thing that entered your life that you really enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that is a constant for me that is it's easy to look at things over 10 or 15 years and create a narrative or act like it's on purpose. But just like you just described your own yeah. story, none of this shit has been on purpose for me. It's been just enthusiastically moving from one thing to another and being open to possibilities. So I don't know, six or eight years ago or something, a friend said, hey, would you like to record Neurosis live at the Metro? I'm going to do this video thing. And I had never done a live remote. And I said, yeah, let's do that. And then immediately started researching and figuring out what I needed to rent and all this. And it went great. So then I was doing more live remotes. And that, then that was a thing I could do. Last year, or last year, I don't know, this band Town Portal in Copenhagen said, hey, we'd like to have you come out to Denmark to record us. And who would say no to that? I know. And it, it went 
I mean, it was like one of the best weeks of my life. It was just amazing. And it just changed my perspective a lot on recording sessions. And so now I've been doing a lot more traveling to record and I love it. It's just amazing. And it, I'm not scared of it anymore. It's, it's just, so I think for me, just a lot of it has been being willing to jump into something that you are in a little bit over your head and then prepare a lot and hopefully come out feeling like you're able to do that thing. And that just opens doors slowly in my case, I guess, but you just gotta be willing to do that stuff. And and it's easy to do it if you're excited about it. I know I keep bringing up the day gig because it, it, it was such an integral part of your life for so long, but are there muscle memory things that you're still trying to get over? Like you might wake up at like a certain time in the morning in a panic, like, oh, okay, I gotta get out the door and go to this thing. and. Or have you just settled right into... No, I don't... You know, the funny part is the difference between being a computer programmer and being a mix engineer is like... <laughs> it's not that different. I'm up earlier than I was previously because time, mixing time is very precious. Like it may be that if you're coding something, you can sit down and just think about it over lunch and come back like with a new perspective on it. But your ears need to take breaks for audio, but it, it is mostly just... Fingers on faders, fingers on mouse time, that's it. So I'm just trying to maximize the amount of time that I have. And that is a little bit different. You know, I've never been in a situation where like my raw throughput mattered that much. Where are these gigs coming from and how are they coming? Who fucking knows, right? <laughs> well, like, where, where are these gigs coming from? Yeah, like, do you think it's... You've heard my work. I mean, is it a direct it's, result it's of, a of, mystery. Of, of your audio work, but also your, your band, your attachment to that scene? Yeah, there's no doubt, right? So our band has been around for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. We played lots of shows. We know tons of people in bands. We've stayed on lots of people's couches. Lots of people have stayed on our couches. We put out, I think longevity in the scene that we're in is a thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah. So for instance, that Town Portal session in Denmark, they specifically really liked the way our band's last record sounded. And they were thinking about coming to Oakland to record it here at Sharkbite. And I was like, that's, that's a big lift. Maybe you don't need to do that. But there's no doubt that that is... A contributor while we were on tour a couple of years ago in Europe, these guys we were playing in Sweden, and these guys came down from Norway. They drove like six hours to see this show. Wow. And to meet us and to hang out and talk. And the singer, Lars, said, Hey, I want you to record our band. And I their record just came out. You know, that was two or three years ago. And I think this genre, this world that I mostly operate in, is like that. It is still people who will drive six hours to see a show that 100 people are at. I think if you're, you know, what I think of as like the mix magazine kind of recording engineer, you're trying to recreate Damn the Torpedoes or you want to, <laughs> you know, learn mix tricks from Chris Lord Algae or something like that. The things that I'm describing will seem sort of foreign, but... I'm never going to fucking make Damn the Torpedoes. You know, I don't care about that world at all. And this stuff, sort of indie, punk, metal, hardcore thing is, it's great. And there's a ton of records being made. There's a ton of great bands. So I, this is a, another long answer. I'm sorry, but I think that that's what it comes down to is there is a community and you go to shows, you go on tour, you meet people, you just love music. You know, all the bands that I've recorded, like we started email threads after the session where we list off all the bands that we mentioned to each other in passing during the session. Because it's always like, oh, have you heard this band? You know, like I was in Denmark and Christian, the, the guitar player in that band, he's got like an encyclopedic knowledge of 
weird American like math rock bands. So he's telling me all these bands I'd never heard of. And I'm telling him like European bands he hadn't heard of. So we had this great email thread afterwards, like, oh, go listen to this. You know, we, so we all stay in touch and it feels like it's just genuine love and enthusiasm for music itself. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, your heart is clearly in the right place and your, your agenda seems to be genuine. Uh, oh, thanks. Which is, I mean, it's refreshing. It's, I mean, you don't seem like you're not putting on airs. You're just kind of, you're following the passion that you have for this in the scene that your strengths in and I don't know. I just, it's inspiring to see you do it. And that's why I was so interested in getting together again and talking about it just to examine like, oh, what's involved in that process. And we're in the exact same studio that we were in five years ago when I first interviewed you. You continue to rent space from Ryan who runs Shark Bite in your own private space. So I think my biggest mistakes was that I, you know, I got to a point where like, I just wanted to keep getting bigger and bigger and that wasn't necessarily the right move. It seems like to me that you did like a build it and they will come move a little bit. Is that a little bit fair? Uh, no, that's totally fair. In fact, that was probably my biggest downfall, but I had a situation like this with a manageable overhead clients. And had I stayed on that path and just had been a little more calculating about it, I probably would be in a, well, things would have been vastly different. Yeah. But fortunately, I've learned greatly from my mistakes. And Well, I feel like that to me, it, it felt like that was the reason you started this podcast. It totally was. Was to go ask people like. I fucked up. How are you not fucking up? Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think for me, not fucking up has meant being super, super conservative about the things you just described. Don't build it and they will come. I, I think I learned that a long, long time ago. Many, many years ago, I thought simply having a studio and being a decent engineer would get bands that I liked to come in and record. But that's not the way it works. Bands want to record with people they know or people who have recorded records that they admire. And you don't get to become that by just having a studio. Yeah, by staying super, well, as minimal as I could. I think that's prevented me, you know, just absolutely driving off the road and going bankrupt. It, but it took me a long time to even move into a space. And I think had I done that earlier, like moving into this space was really transformative, made a big difference. This place is not glamorous. It's totally functional, though. It's awesome. And I wish we had about, uh, like a, a five years ago picture and a picture now because it's way more lived in now. And it's awesome. The difference between, oh, I can track at a studio and mix at home and make everything else work and having a space where it's like, yeah, meet me at midnight and we can do a vocal overdub real quick if that's when you get off work. And having a space that you control, it is dramatic. It's, it doesn't need to be 25th Street or whatever. To, right. It doesn't need to be super high end to, to be operating. Well, yeah. And the truth is, even though this place is small, by now I think it's reasonably high end. Like the gear is pretty good and the, oh, you yeah. know, got a good mic locker and everything's good. It's just small and it's relatively affordable. So that said... I totally would like to have a bigger space. It would sure be nice to mix in the same place that I track, for instance. That would make a big difference in workflow and in choices of outboard and all kinds of stuff. And I would love to be able to say, oh, we're just about done with overdubs, but yeah, let's just set up a drum kit in the big room and go play something or whatever. Right. That kind of thing. But that's a huge undertaking. Jack Shirley, you did, you interviewed Jack, right? Yeah, Jack's been on. Were you at his new place? I interviewed him at the new place and took a tour of the framed out walls. You got to go over there. It is magnificent. It is gorgeous. And he, when he was getting into that, he had talked to me a little bit about being the second studio. 
because he's got a shared live room and two control rooms and sets of ISO booths. And he was, as he is, super optimistic about the construction schedule. And, you know, I think we could be in here and doing sessions in like six months. And I was like, you're out of your mind. But he, <laughs> that was also before he, that he was planning to do a way more punk rock version of what he ended up doing. So it took, I don't know, two years or something to get in there. And that is the dream for me. Like the shared live room and someone you, you like and respect and can hang out with and compare notes with. And a live room that's getting used even when you're not using it. Like, it just sounds great. So yeah, I've been daydreaming about like, maybe I could go find a building like Jack did and, you know, move the whole family in there and stuff. Yeah. Well, more power to you if you decide to go that way. But I will say that the methods you've been using up to this point seem to be a real winner as far as how to make it work. Because had I taken some of the, the methods you've used and just been a little more conservative about it, like you say, it would have been a different story. Yeah. But when we talk about being conservative, we're just talking about financially conservative. I guess, yeah, I guess so. Risk conservative in whatever way. Thinking through and not, let's face it, for me, the emotion of it really kind of, and, and I think the ego part of it really overtook me. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go move into that big place and I'm going to do it. And it just did not fucking work. Well, when you look at, when you read magazines or you read interviews and you see pictures of people in these amazing spaces and it's fucking dreamy. It's the equivalent of, you know, body image issues for studio space or whatever. But I think in most of those cases, those people either had a lot of work when they open their space mm -hmm. or they have alternative income streams. Right. Like drug money or, <laughs> or whatever it is. Like, oh, if I only had some drug money. <laughs> well, and you know, in the 90s, I think we're, we're, to me, it seemed like the 90s, the 80s and 90s was when this like sort of arms race happened. Like the record business was booming and the studio gear business started booming and studios had to, to lure engineers in. They all had to have like the latest fanciest shit. So they were all going in debt to do that because they knew that there was bookings were never going to end. And we still look at the, oh, damn, the torpedoes. Like, he, I don't know why I keep picking on Tom Petty. Like, that's just not realistic. You know, that was made with made up money. Like it was made with borrowed money two different ways. But we still all, I think, aspire to, that's, you know, that's to these why, mixed magazine cover photos. That's, I mean, sometimes when it comes to social media, I, I see posts of fancy looking places. And it's amazing, like, oh, it's like 5,000 likes or, or whatever's they are. You know, it's just people do like the fantasy of it. But the reality on the ground, when it comes down to it, of just trying to, like, manage a facility. And, I mean, shit, you were at Steve Albini's place. And mm -hmm. He runs a well-oiled machine, right? One of my favorite things about that experience was knowing that place is a legit world-class studio and it has been built entirely with like this against the grain attitude. Just everything there is a little different than the tried and true at mm -hmm. other studios. And from the studio construction to like that B room, there's no wood anywhere. And the consoles they have are Neotechs. They're not APIs or Neves or SSLs. Yeah. And their outboard, they have a bunch, but it's not like you're going to see, you know, eight 1176s and six LA2As. It's it's a weird, you know, their A-room has four or three RNCs, like, and a bunch of other stuff. And their mic locker is incredible, but there's lots of weird stuff in there. And I just, I love that. Like, they're learning their own lessons and, and making records the way that they want to and have never, never paid attention to fashion. And I think probably in Steve's case, there's a bit of a fuck you to fashion also, even though he, 
he'll always have an explanation for why they did what, you know, an intellectual explanation. I think there is also a sort of proud to go his own way thing, but it was awesome. Like, yeah. you know, and, and yes, and they have a, a two room, beautiful facility with a fucking staff who gets paid and gets healthcare. Like they've got a tech, they've got all this stuff that, you know, your real studio in the nineties had when it was all cocaine money, but it's, done by making indie records. What I've always loved about him is, you know, he's talked about not really paying attention or participating in the quote-unquote music industry. And when Brenda, my wife, when a song will come on, I'm like, who's this? And she'll say, well, how can you not know who this is? I'm just like, because that is not my world. Yeah. I do not pay attention to like 90% of what is going down in the mainstream world because for the most part, I'm a rock guy and I like rock music. I like heavy music. And when heavy music is around, that's when I pay attention. Mm -hmm. That's when it grips me. That's when it emotionally grips me. I always think back to Steve and I think, I don't really participate in that world. My kids occasionally will ask if I'm talking about a band or something, or they'll say, you know, is that person famous? And what I've always said, they've asked us since they were little. It's a weird question. And I've always told them, like, there's lots of different kinds of famous. There's Kardashian famous, but there's also, yeah, shellac famous or whatever. There's lots of little worlds and every little world has its own heroes and mainstays and people whose work we value. And it's all great. And if you're trying to do something for a living or just stay busy, if you're in any one of those little worlds, there's tons of work happening, tons of great work. So that's, that's definitely... For Steve to say he doesn't participate in the music industry, he does. It's just a different music industry. Yeah, it's just a different track. It's He's yeah. a different stage, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's all still music, but I always try to encourage people on the show or just in person, just as long as you're like making a living, you're kind of, you know, being responsible for yourself and or your family, all that other stuff is just, I don't know, it's just bullshit to me. I just, I, I go back and forth. Like sometimes I feel weird, like, Oh, okay. Well, I don't have a Grammy. I, mean, I don't know even how to get a Grammy. Maybe someday there'll be a podcast Grammy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe they'll have a pot. Do there are there, there's certainly there's podcasting awards, right? The potty. The potty. Is that what they would call oh, it. Oh yeah. You could have a potty. Awards. You could win a potty. Yeah, I could win a potty. But like, I'm gonna I'm gonna be at Music Expo this weekend, and I'm moderating this panel, and I think everybody on the panel except me has had a Grammy. And, you know, it's like a little bit of the body issue thing. You're kind of like, oh, well, I don't have that. But yep. But it's like, at the same time, I, I kind of take the fuck you approach. I'm like, whatever. So imposter syndrome is a big deal for me personally. It always has been. It remains something that I struggle with a lot. And there's some, some degree of, you know, if you're at a place, you're supposed to be there. Yeah. And no one else knows that you don't have a Grammy. No, they actually do know that you don't have a Grammy. They know. They know. <laughs> uh, but no one knows whatever. No one knows what college you went to or whatever thing you think that everyone there is supposed to have in order to have gotten into that club. Well, no one's checking your papers <laughs> before you get in the room. <laughs> right. And so if you can, and also I've heard this a lot recently, all everyone cares about is themselves. They're not worried about you. They're thinking about themselves. They're worried about their own imposter issues or their own. So when I'm able to get past that and just do the work and try my hardest not to fuck up. You know, that's nice. I definitely am better off when I'm not comparing myself to, to other people and, and just doing my best, but that is a struggle for sure. So I have no point that I'm getting at. <laughs>
Are, are we being funny? You're such a comedian, Scott. Fuck. <laughs> so have you started now that you're on this new path? Are you starting to gear shop more? No, I think, in fact, I'm probably starting to gear shop less. That's good. Historically, my deal with myself, I think I may have even said this when I talked to you last, was that the studio had to pay for itself. And I didn't want to be draining the family finances because dad just really needs a fancy set of golf clubs. That's what it comes down to, right? And studios had no problem paying for itself. And that's let me do a bunch of gear stuff. But A, it's pretty good in here now. And B, that money is now... The deal with the studio is different, and everything that doesn't go into gear goes into the bottom line of our income. Huh. So I guess it sounds ridiculous to say that out loud, but it's definitely a real thing. You know, when I had another source of income, this it still was important to get paid here, but the bottom line was different. Yeah, the place is pretty built up by now, and gear-wise, I mean, I, I think you talked about rooms, and Andy Oswald said to me once that the reason that we're audio engineers is because we're problem solvers. It's like a natural personality trait for people who are going to do audio. And so that means you kind of look for problems, <laughs> right? And so constantly optimizing your workspace or your gear or your workflows or whatever is like a natural personality trait. But at some point, it's going to be like, maybe these are all lateral moves at this point. I don't need a 17th distortion pedal or a, another ribbon mic or whatever. So I've actually chilled out on that thing. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. It's a great exercise for me to, we'll, we'll call it strength building, uh, <laughs> where I'll get, I'm on my phone and I'm looking at Reverb. Yeah, I put Reverb.com back on my phone and I'll just scroll through and I'm like, oh, that's cool. I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. And if I can get through that and not buy anything, I'm like, oh, I feel so good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I review gear for Tape Op. So I, if I want to try something- Never heard of it. It's a magazine. It's like podcasting from the olden days. <laughs> right. And so if I want to try something that's new and looks cool, I can hit up Scott McChain and say, hey, are, is anyone reviewing this? So I, I get to see a lot of things that way. But here's, here's the thing that I think everyone should do with their gear. Imagine that you're going to- go somewhere else to record someone. Like say you're going to fly somewhere, you're going to drive somewhere and you can take like one shoulder bag full of gear or whatever. What around you would you take? Mm. And to me, that's the shit you really want. You're trying to find those things. And all the other things that are like, oh, I would use this once in a while or I could probably see using this. Those end up just being sort of noise. And, and knowing that has made me way more selective. There's a well-known, very expensive limiter right next to me that I got recently that I've been using a bunch. And so far, it's, it's good, but it's not, not grabbing me like as a desert island kind of thing. So I don't know if I'll keep that. So anyway, the point is those, those pieces of gear, and they don't have to be expensive, I can list off of, you know, my favorite tape out reviews that I've written in the last year or two have been for like $10 things that I fucking love bringing into sessions. Mm. Those are the things that I care about now. What is the kind of thing you can always grab with confidence and know it's going to be great? And once you start thinking about it that way, 
you're less likely to be like, oh yeah, I could use some more garbage mic stands, or I, you know, I could, <laughs> uh, I could use some, you know, this 500 series compressor clone, whatever is probably pretty good. There's also that the pieces of gear that I don't necessarily want to own. I just want to try them out. I just want to get in front of them and go, oh, what's the deal with this? Oh, okay, that's the deal with this. And sometimes I will avoid buying certain pieces of gear because I just think, okay, well, you're going to get that piece of gear. But with that comes the cabling, and then you got to put it somewhere. You got to, and are you going to actually even use it? And a couple of years ago, I did this Bye Bye Blackbirds record down at Shark Bite, and we used one of their mid 60s AC30s. Have you ever used those amps at the Shark Bite ones? No. Those things have like toured with Dylan. They're legit pedigree Voxes, and they smell, you know, like they're going to catch on fire when you fire them up. Man, you could not make that amp sound bad. Like we, we were trying to do like glassy cleans with it. And we all looked at each other. We're like, holy shit, do you hear this thing? It's amazing. And then we're like, maybe we try doing something a little dirty. And we turned it up. And it was like, fuck, listen to that. <laughs> Just anything we did with it. Like, well, what if we do this? I was like, God damn. And that, that's what you want. You just want a room of the, even if it's only 10 things instead of 80 things, like that's what you want. You want mics that you know when you put them up, you, you just know you're not going to have to swap that mic. You want compressors that when you put them on, they're going to be fucking great. Plugins, anything, you name it. And so that's that's been my life, has been trying to get the, like, does this EQ spark joy? <laughs> you know? like Right. I haven't watched that show in a while. Spark joy. Right. Well, I tell you, I mentioned it in one of the past shows is in regards to the PG&E power losses that we had. And then in Lafayette, we had an evacuation order for one part of town. Mm-hmm. And I had to go into my studio and go, okay, I need to pack a couple bags of some stuff. What am I going to take with me? What if this place burns down? What's important right now? And that really just shifted all of my thinking right then and there. I was like, I got rid of a lot of stuff a long time ago, but I could probably go through another purge. Yeah. And start to really trim down. And as I get older- Did you just shrug and walk out? Like, yeah. <laughs> no. Actually, no. I gathered a few things. There were some mics I grabbed and some basics that I knew that would allow me to get the podcast done. But any of my ideas of expanding into deeper outboard gear land and out of in the box land, that went out the window right then and there. I was like, well, grab the laptop and grab an interface and some headphones and a couple mics. And let, let's set all that by the front door. Also, as I get older and Brendan and I are like, okay, well, once the kids go to college, if they go to college, once they move out of the house and we're empty nesters, what is the plan? Do I want to do what Andrew's doing, Andrew Sheps is doing? And, you know, just like, you know, laptop, headphones. Like, like mix Metallica records? Yeah, that's oh, what you want to yeah, do. Mi- yeah, because, <laughs> you know, I'll be doing that. Yeah, But like studio in a backpack kind of a thing. Mm is kind of like where my head is starting to really go. And I think, ooh, how can I pare down even more? Mm. And, I, and it makes me think of like a, what is the ultimate paring down challenge or studio challenge? Instead of like, build a studio for five or 10 grand, it's like, how can I get a studio and a backpack right. and make it rock? Yeah, I mean, some of the guys in my band have another band called No Lights. And we did their last record in a couple days of Shark Bites, super quick and dirty. And then I mixed it sitting on the couch with headphones and just whatever plugins I could like license, uh, you know, I turns out, I didn't know this. Most of those iLock licenses are like one of three. So you can actually run them on a couple of computers. I was like, Oh, cool. I can use like my fab filter stuff and whatever. And it just sounded fucking great. And I was like, well, this is a little chin scratchy here. I, you know, I came in here and we ran it through a few things, but so I think that is 
a thing you can do. It just depends what you like doing. Some of the gear in here does spark joy for various reasons. Like some of it just, it just does a thing. You know, like any outboard that I'm keeping, it's because it does a thing. And some things just have cool stories, which makes it hard for me to sell. So I just sold a pair of, God, they were, I don't know, 40 or 50 year old RCA ribbons. Oh, I saw you yeah, were selling those. I remember when you bought those. I bought those on fucking Goodwill's website. I know, I was so jealous. And that alone is like, if you're a gear scavenger, that is like, that's a fucking victory right there. And I had Clarence Kane, Enac, restore them, you know, with all original RCA parts and all this stuff. And I bought cases for them. That kind of thing makes it hard. Like that's never going to happen again. And every time that I would use them, I love saying, you know, I got these from Goodwill. Uh, <laughs> but the truth is I didn't love the way they sounded. Uh. And like they're old and they're cool. And, but I just did, I like every time I try them in a bunch of different usages, applications, and was never like, whoa, what a score. Holy mojo. So I sold them and it was actually hard to do a little bit because the story was so good. And and since I'm such a cheap ass and bargain hunter, like a lot of the gear I have has a story like that attached to it. Well, I've always been like, if it's not getting used, I don't want it here. But if there's a story like that, it's a little, it's a little bit more like, well. It's the thrill of the hunt. It's cool. Like, you know, I don't know. Anyway. You're not buying so much is what you're trying to say. I have a few things I'd like to sell you when we get done is what I'm saying. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm even open to the discussion, but. <laughs> but. You're like, look at your eye in my rack. You're like, well. Oh, well, uh, what do you got over there, Scott? <laughs> yeah. Don't oogle my rack, man. My eyes are here. That's right. That's right. We talked in our last interview about work-life balance, the fact that you don't really see your wife all that often. But now, has that changed? I mean, you did talk about how you can come home now and you're not bolting back yeah, at the no, door. Yeah, no, so it's probably too early to say, but it, I one of the reasons that I wanted to do this was so that I could see my wife and kids more. Our kids are young teenagers now, and we used to think it was really important to be around them a lot when they were little, and I think they don't remember that at all. I don't know, like, behaviorally how it affected them, but I know they'll remember it now, and I know it means a lot to us to be around them now. I mean, it always has, but they are full-fledged functioning more or less semi-adults at this point. And being around them is, it's a lot. It is a lot emotionally and it, it means a lot. And so that's the hope, you know, is that I can in fact come home and then be home. And so far that has been happening and that's great. And, you know, now if a kid is like, hey, I forgot my whatever, can you run it by? Like, you know, yeah, I can do that. Well, if I'm not tracking, tracking is a different story that we still got to work out. But yes, it, you know, I think work-life balance wise, hopefully, I was basically doing two kind of full-time jobs at the same time before, and now it's really one. Mm. So that should balance out much better. And the ironic thing in that, though, is is some teenagers just don't want to hang out with their parents. No, they don't want to hang out with us at all, but it's not, that's tough shit. Right. And some of it is just teenage mouthing off. No, I think they legitimately don't want to hang out with us. <laughs> well, as far as the process is concerned with making records, I mean- Clearly, your time was challenged before, and now without the day gig, it's different. And we talked a little bit about that. Now you can like do eight days in a row without being super stressed. But what I'm curious about, because our wives both work corporate jobs, how does that work for scheduling? Because like I'm the one who's doing all the I'm picking them up today, yeah, yeah. to you know make sure that people get to soccer and get their homework done. 
how do you guys make that work? Well, we're going to figure it out still. I mean, I definitely, I make, I've for years been the person who makes most of the dinners at our house. I do most of our grocery shopping. This is one of these things where either of us could, could do all this stuff and it just schedule wise, I end up doing it a lot. I'm also, my wife is great at like, like in a crisis, like I'll just be like, oh God, oh God. But like, she'll be awesome. She like becomes a hero. And like for dull, repetitive tasks, say cleaning up the Tom tracks on a full length record or coiling cables or buying groceries. Mm, that's that's your forte. That's my stuff. <laughs> if there's something, if you need the trash taken out every week, I'm your guy. So doing things like making tacos three times a week or whatever it is, I do that stuff. And when it comes to tracking, we just have to figure it out. Our kids are not yet quite old enough to just fully function on their own, but they're getting there. And I don't have a good answer, I guess. I mean, I'm still, I'm still making dinners a lot. And on tracking days, maybe I can start earlier. I've had more and more bands who are like, yeah, we'll start at 10. We'll start at 9.30. So, you know, if we can do that and I can get out by six or whatever... Cool. It's golden. Yeah. Has it changed your outlook on how you make a record and your process? I hope that if you ask me that in six months, I will say that, you know, my ears have gotten better just from reps. I think reps are really, really important. I remember when I interviewed Andrew Schneider a long time ago for Tape Op, he said, mixing is a muscle and you got to kind of keep it conditioned. I thought that was really insightful. And I think it's absolutely true. And so I'm, I'm hoping that by increasing the amount of just exposure I have to audio even more, that that will level me up a little bit. You think you're going to just spend more of your time taking deeper dives into the craft of record making so that you really kind of just absorb it that much more? I would hope. I just hope it improves my ears, I guess. And, and to some degree, I'm hoping that I can spend a little more time. Like I need to work on my drum tuning. I need to work on... I need to work on all kinds of shit. So I, I hope that I just have a little more time to spend developing skills that may, I probably should have developed a long time ago, but there's always something to work on. Do you enjoy any particular process, tracking versus mixing more? Than Which, whichever one I'm not currently doing, I think. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love tracking. I love, I love tracking good musicians. It is amazing. I mean, I'm kind of a shit musician, but I, I've been around enough good musicians that I can tell when, like I always say, like, you can tell if a drummer is good from they sit down at their kit and they just like stretch a little and like hit a hi-hat or a snare once or something just to get in position right then you can tell. And it is fantastic to be around that stuff. It is less fantastic to be trying to just make something the times where you get sort of get into the mud and you've got to, can we put this together? But tracking great music is really, really awesome. And actually, I guess I feel as sort of as far as like mental health goes, I think I feel more energized by tracking. Mixing is a real mind fuck for me. Mixing is hard. I get such a thrill out of mixing. It's like, oh, a new puzzle. Oh, I get, I get to put the puzzle together. No, it seems like that on day one. And then by day six, you're like, fuck, this puzzle is too hard. And I'm <laughs> bad at puzzles. Do you experience that? No, I, I get in. I love it from the get go because I don't know, I could just... It, figure out like, okay, what's going to be my plan here? Okay. First song, send it to the client comes back. Okay. They're this kind of client. They don't like this kind of reverb or they want a ton of reverb or whatever, or they want the, vo the vocal buried or right on top of everything. Once I get that figured out and I just go, I burn through them because I get the process down and 
figure that person out from the first song. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. No, you just need to do it more. Fuck. I beat myself up a lot during mixing. I'll feel great for the first day or so of a mix. And a friend of mine used to say that you kind of have to wrestle wrestle a mix to the ground. You know, you sort of like destroy it before you start building it back up. And I don't think I intentionally do that. In fact, I don't want to do that, but I think it often happens. So I'll feel great and I'll start doing things. And then like this thing that's on that I'm working on right now, I thought I was doing great. And then I listened to it in the car and I was like, man, I got to just undo a lot of the stuff I did. I I am always very hard on myself for whatever reason. And mixing is has always been a real, like, as far as ego goes, just a real kick in the gut. Oh, I mean, uh, it hasn't been flawless for me. I mean, I've just, I've gone through a process of, even to this day, I'll do a whole set of mixes on a record and then I'll go and do some, you know, casual listening to something else. And I'm like, oh, and you know, you get the body image yeah. issues and you're like, oh shit. And it's not until... A year, two years down the road, I hear the record again, and I'm like, actually, that that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. It's actually it's really good. Uh, or alternately, you're like, this is worse than I thought. I right, or, or that might just be me. Well, no, I I definitely am like, oh shit, God, if I could go back and remix. Yeah, I mean, that, often I, there's a whole thing where you're like, fuck, I was so worried about this, and that is not remotely important. You know, no. you get target fixation on oh, these drums need to be big or whatever. And in fact, what the problem is that the vocals are, are the feel is all wrong or something like that. You don't even notice that. Yeah, I don't know. I, the things that I really enjoy about mixing, I think are the first day and the last day. <laughs> like, you know, like getting stuff set up and just like starting and doing like big moves and getting things in place. And then that part where you're like doing half DB rides to make everything just so at the end and you've got it. I, those are both really satisfying to me. I think the worst part of it that I experience is I'll do a mix and I'm really big on it. And I'm like, oh, this is great. Send it to the band. The band's like, oh, I love it. And then for some scheduling reason, you end up coming back to it again. Like it, it's not signed off on fully because you have some other stuff to do. And then you come back to it and you're about to send it off to mastering and you listen to it again with fresh ears and you go, ooh, shit. Oh, yeah. I, I think I want to touch something up. I was just explaining this to a friend who was, he's been mixing his band's own records recently, which is new for him. And he's like, man, I just had to remix something a little bit after hearing the first pass from the mastering engineer and I feel terrible. And I was like, dude, I do that all the time. <laughs> I do that all the time. And I think it's really important that people who are doing this stuff hear that. Recording engineers project confidence, like just effortlessly and if you befriend enough of them, you realize that in fact, their internal dialogue is not nearly as sort of like fluid and confident as it might seem to hear them talk about it. It's like a stand-up comic. Yeah. They're tortured inside. Yes. So know that, like know that a lot of the records that you love had the kick drum layered over the fucking mix and mastering because they the engineer had somehow missed the fact that the kick drum wasn't loud enough or wasn't there or, or, you know, whatever, like all kinds of awful shit that someone would scold you about doing mm -hmm. on the internet. Everyone does that. And that's how the sausage gets made. I tell you, what's made me a better mix engineer is mastering is, is me mastering. Oh, Be interesting. Because it just, it's a, obviously it's a completely different mindset and you're looking at things or hearing things very differently just gives you a lot of like what not to do. It's just like, oh shit, I think I do this sometimes. Ooh, don't do that. Yeah. You know what's interesting is that I always try to get that stuff out of mastering engineers. Like, tell me what I fucked up, you well, know? I, I was doing something the other day and I 
it was a great moment of just, okay, I'm not injecting my opinion here. I'm actually encountering an issue that's blowing everything. Like I could get the thing, the whole song sounding great. And then there's this one moment that's just screwing it all up. And I had to call my buddy and go, Hey dude, I need you to knock this down just a little bit because you're, it's good. you're overdoing it here. And he's like, yeah, cool. Because from the get go, he said, if there's anything I need to, to address in here, please. I say that up. every fucking time. And yeah. so I don't know. I am good friends with a, a bunch of the people who do mastering for me and they, I still want to kill them. Like, when you master something and you send it back to the band and or the engineer, do you include any notes? No. God damn it. Why? First because of all, you're a bad person. That's why. When you're mixing someone's record, do you just like throw their mixes over the wall? Like, hey, here's a we transfer link. Let me know. Do I throw it over the wall and say, tell me what you think? Or do you send like a paragraph of text? No. Really? No. God, because I hate writing in the first place. Don't you think the the band is like dying to know what you thought as you were working on their their songs? I think I think instead what I what I do substitute in is conversations because I like to talk. Oh, that's fine. You know, sure, I something will, though. I'll have phone conversations. In fact, I did this record for for a guy in Sound Better actually that turned out to be a Bay Area guy, and we met in person at Twenty Fifth Street. He handed off a hard drive of stuff to me. I took it, he had a thing of notes and I would send him a mix and he would call me and go, okay, I heard it, I love it. How did you do this? And we would have a dialogue about the song. And I'd say, well, this was a bit of a challenge. I like this, so I did this and would explain some of the process. That's fucking great. That is like that is even better, in fact, than an email exchange or, or a text exchange. I can't email somebody a shit ton of notes about, hey, in the mix, you need to do this. I'll call them on the phone. Yeah, that's and great. But so what I found with almost every mastering engineer I've worked with is that you just get a link from them every time. You know, and I don't do a lot of attended mastering sessions, but so maybe it's different then. But it's like, tell me what you're doing. Yeah. Like you don't have to the band probably doesn't care that you're doing like a 5K boost in the mids and like widening the the 10K or whatever, I care. I think it depends because I was observing a conversation on Facebook with a ton of mastering engineer friends. Some like, I don't want to name any names, but there, there were some heavy duty people on there. And I was watching everybody go back and forth on this, on this topic. And a lot of it revolved around just not doing what we're talking about. Well, I, so it's interesting. I think that definitely part of the, the folks that I work with, I think part of their work personality is to be enthusiastic, is to keep things moving forward and to see the positives. And they see all kinds of records every day. And some of them probably come in sounding terrible and some come in sounding amazing. And you just assume the engineer did the best they could and do what you can with it. And that's that. So I think there is like a, a personality thing of just keeping things moving. And, but I don't want that. Like I, I and I always say that I'm yeah. like, look, just give it to me straight. Like if I'm fucking this up or if like you think I'm, I can't hear below a hundred Hertz or you think like whatever it is, like Evans, why are your vocals always so this, anything, just tell me that and I'll work on it. Or I'll tell you it's on purpose. Yeah. But it's been very hard to get that stuff out of mastering engineers. And I really want to know, like when I listen to your masters, like, are you compressing these? Are you doing any stereo shit? Tell me what you're doing. I'm an engineer. Yeah. You know, like I'm, I want to know. Yeah. Like a band is just going to be like, it's loud. I love it. Well, it's funny you say that because I used to do that with mastering engineers as a mix engineer where I'd say it's to me, it's like going to the doctor. It's like, 
tell me what's wrong. Yeah. Do I need to change my diet? Do I need to cut, lose a little weight? Yes. And all these guys in this thread, I will say this, all of them I deeply respect, but they all work on major label shit. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'm going to stay out of this conversation. Right. And I, I, that world may be different. Uh, those people may be more used to, well, I don't know. Again, here I am projecting magic onto people who work at a higher level than me, where I think, oh, maybe they're used to just their say being final. But I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure if you're mastering a record for insert big shit engineer here, there's still a back and forth and they'll still ask for revisions. And can I just, by the way, I want to comment on a thing that you just did that I think is really important that we not do. And it is to refer to all the guys in a thread. In this particular case. Of course it was. It was all guys. Oh, of course it was. But the point is I hear a lot of interviews with audio people and they'll talk about, oh, yeah, so then you send it to your post guy or like you, you, you're you you're working on this sound and there's a Foley guy that we'll work with or, you know, I've got a guy who does all my editing. And I think, I know there's been a lot of discussion about like, is hey guys appropriate to walk in? Hey guys. And that one I've always been a little bit on the fence on about just because to me that feels like a y'all kind of thing. But specifically that like you've got a Pro Tools guy that you go to, that is to me is clearly male. And I can just imagine hearing that over and over again. If you're listening to audio podcasts and you don't identify as male, it's probably a bummer. Probably, yeah. So this is really more for all you other engineers out there who are being interviewed and who talk that way. Like, maybe try not to do that. It's, <laughs> it's really easy. I agree wholeheartedly. But I will say in this case, literally this thread was all men. Of fucking course it was. Yeah. Dude, I have been trying to find like badass women rock engineers to interview for tape op. You know, I've been talking to mastering engineers that I know. Yeah. Who are you getting rad records from? And it has been really thin. It has been grim. It has just, it's made me realize what a sausage party audio is more than ever, or at least established audio. Sure. I think probably if you look at people who are making punk records who are under 25, I think there's probably a lot more women engineering and they just don't, you don't, they don't come up on the radar of the mastering engineers I work with. Yeah. Cause they're probably, they've got their own scene of mastering engineers that they're using or they're doing it themselves. I will say this, it takes great effort to find specifically women engineers to come on the show. Sometimes I reach out to anybody I can. And I, and I got to give a shout out to Carrie Keys from Sound Girls. Mm -hmm. Anytime I, I see an article about an engineer on Sound Girls that Carrie has highlighted, like I've, I've had, in fact, I had an encounter with Carrie where I saw an article. I was like, Ooh, I gotta, I gotta interview her. Send Carrie a message like within the hour. There's a follow-up email from the very engineer that I want to interview. That's fucking awesome. Because Carrie had carried the message through, and she's been awesome in that way. What is it? Sound Girls? Sound Girls, yeah. Is that a... What is that? It's it's a, it's kind of like Women's Audio Mission. Okay. Sorry, I've just... I've been waiting for a... A moment. I've been waiting for a platform to say that for a long time. Every time I hear one of these podcasts, I'm like, man, you're doing it. So I finally got to say it. All right. Well, noted and- I wasn't trying to scold you specifically. Okay. All right. I, I don't feel scolded. Okay. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, the process. Sure. Yeah. I try to talk to people about the process. I hate writing shit. You, generally, my emails and my texts are very kind of, hey, call me. That's great. Yeah. Do you work with any younger musicians? 
Yeah. God, yeah. Jesus. It seems like everybody's younger than me. Well, now. good point. No, I meant young, not younger. Sorry. And the reason I ask is because I think the youth of today probably barely knows that their phone can make phone calls. Well, it's funny because I, over time, I've stopped leaving messages and I just text. Oh, yeah. 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 I guess my point is that I, I love in person conversations. They are so much. They're better in like most ways for the kind of thing you're describing compared to any text-based medium. But I think it's also hard to get some people on the phone. I do a lot more video calls yeah. than anything because I want to see that person's face and see their reaction when I say, there's a problem. Yeah. And based on what I see in their face, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I've pushed it a little too far. Sorry. Yeah. But anyhow. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send Send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. One other thing that you had asked about what might change, and another thing that I'm actually hoping, and this is kind of funny, is that I get to make music more now. As a player? Yeah. Our band has been, I mean, everyone is an adult, but it's been hard for us to write and keep things moving, partially just because of time. And I'm hoping that I can have more time at night, for instance, to do that stuff. And I'm hoping that maybe I can get a few other projects going too, which would be great. And I feel like those things are, they're great for my brain. And they're, you know, you can defend them as being useful professionally too, I guess. But mostly it's just a chance to, like I got this Eurorack thing here that I've been building lately. Oh, yeah. And just sitting there, you know, building beats with it and stuff has been like super fun. And I haven't done stuff like that in a long time. And it's like, man, maybe I can... Maybe I can carve out some time to do some of this stuff and just remember that making music is actually like fun and good. If you're in tune with that world on uh, more often, you make you make a more enjoyable engineer to be around. Yeah. And not such a, a tweaker about everything. Oh. No, I definitely think that the, the, there's an engineering mentality where you want to make everything easy for you. Yeah. And those are the people that make, <laughs> those are the people that cause band members to go off and become engineers themselves because <laughs> you know, they're like i don't want to deal with a fucking asshole like this anymore telling right. me that i you know i can't play this way or my symbols need to be higher or you know like my amp is too distorted or like fuck you i'm just and that all goes back i think to to the tools that you choose like if you make your engineering world too complex and and and, and not intuitive so that you can just flow with the band i know people talk about the flow state well if you can't get into the flow state with the band and let the band just be themselves because you got to get into your tweaky world, there's times for that. And then there's times to like- That is a very different recording experience. You, you need to like be able to just have a, a set of gear that is you're comfortable with that you could just go, okay, I'm set, go do your thing. Yep. Yeah, Jack Shirley is, I love Jack. 
he is also like he's he's just great at being like he should sell things for a living. He's he's just great at being convincing at things. And he's been doing a ton of aggressive loud bands all in the room, no headphones. And I've always been like, you're high. I can't do that. You know, that's my drum sounds. He's like, you got to try it. You got to try it. You got to do it. You got to try it. I've done that in a long time, like since doing records in practice spaces. Because the, the bands that I record, it is jet engine level guitars. And you still want like gigantic roomy drums and stuff. But for a couple of records recently, I've tried it. Like, okay, we'll go blow everything up and try and get you to turn down a little bit. And if you can't, we won't have drum room sounds, whatever. And he's right. It, from the musician perspective, it is night and day. Like, this just feels like band practice, you yeah. know? Like, this just feels like we're setting up and playing. Yeah. If all you're thinking about is, oh, my drum sounds, then you'd never be open to that. Yeah. There's a time and a place. I'm still not going to do it most of the time. Like, if... If someone's going to like cite this and be like, hey, you said I You said, need... yeah, they're going to call you out. And be like, put your drum sounds. Yeah. They'll protest you. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, this has been great, man. It's it's good to, I'm really excited for you. I'm really happy to see where you're at with this and how you've approached it. And it's, it's definitely a, a lesson I think a, a lot of us could learn from. I wish, shit, I wish you did it before I fucked everything up. Yeah, it's. Even hearing you talk about it now in retrospect for me, it's still like, oh, there's some there's some things to cherry pick here about the way you're doing things that I think others are going to get a lot out of it. I certainly am getting stuff out of it. So Great. Thanks. It's it's awesome to still be here. I, I know. <laughs> I'm still here. For real. That's uh, astonishing to me. So hey, it's cool to get to talk with you again. And you have one of the like three worthwhile podcasts on audio creation in existence. So oh, shit. great job. Wow. Thanks. Yeah. So maybe that whole everything for a reason, right? The whole studio thing was. You are where you're supposed to be, I guess, as you said earlier, or okay. something like I'm that. I'm afraid so. Well, cool, man. I'm going to let you go. Thanks for coming by, Matt. It's awesome to see you. Yeah. Good to see you. All right. All right. Cheers. Scott Evans here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have Scott back. I hope you got a lot out of that. We had a fun time having that conversation. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. I uh, want to thank everybody that helped out with the show today. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Mr. Cliff Truesdale there on the Working Class Audio theme music, and the smooth and silky voice of Mr. Chuck Smith bringing us in there at the top. Spread the word, as I always say. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Send me a friend request. Send me a connection request. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. 
And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 